Well, if you've been coming here for a while, you know that we're in the midst of a consecutive expository series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Seeing Jesus together in the Gospel of Luke is the subtitle. And we are now uh, in the midst of the sixth chapter. Uh, it doesn't take you too long. If, you, if you're picking up on it, you can go back and read uh, verses 1 through uh, today uh, for our scripture reading, which is going to be Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. As we begin picking up where we left off, at this point in time, Jesus has come down from the mountain and is on a plane, a a wider, more level place, teaching his disciples and others that many, many people have come. Huge crowds have assembled, and he is delivering what we sometimes now call the Sermon on the Plain. You've heard the Sermon on the Mount? Well, there is also the Sermon on the Plain, and we've talked about that, but let's begin with our scripture reading for this morning in Luke 6, 27 through 38. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. To get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good. And lend. Expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind. To the ungrateful. And the evil. Be merciful. Even as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word always 
remains true forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Father, once again, we ask that you would help us today to understand this portion of your holy scripture. But Father, we we know it is true. We know it is right. And yet, Father, we have hearts that are dull and we at times have trouble discerning what your word says. And so we ask you, do not leave us to ourselves, but help send the Holy Spirit in a fresh way to open our minds and our understandings. And Lord, that we might receive today the engrafted word with meekness. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As I've already mentioned, as we saw last time in the series, Luke records something that some have called the Sermon on the Plain, and thus the title, as you can see there. And we're in now part two. There's going to be one more, uh, Lord willing, next week uh, in the third installment of the Sermon on the Plain. Now, again, just so that we get the con- what's happening, Luke alludes to a level place a level place where Jesus began to teach the people that had come down with him after he came down on the mountain earlier that day, in all likelihood. It could have been a a greater period of of time between those, those two events. But this is the the depiction Jesus was on a level plain, what we would call a flat field. Now, if you know anything about that uh, circumstance around the Sea of Galilee, and I'm going to try to help us out here. I believe we've got one. Um, There's not all around here, (laughs) there's not uh, a lot of places where you can find a plane, a a long, large, flat space, if you've ever been there. Uh, Here we are, Capernaum, uh, but... Notice, look over here. The plain of Gennesaret, or also sometimes called the plain of Gennesar. Gennesar. Um, that, right in this area, about three miles from Capernaum, and you can see here the Beati- Mount of the Beatitudes is here, and this is Mount Arbel, but this, this plain that runs in here, and you notice this huge triangle and would have been backed up perhaps Jesus would have been somewhere in here speaking to out those on this plane the thousands of people likely that were there Uh, we have one other a couple of others and again this was this is from Arbel and you can see this plane very clearly uh, evident to us of course it has today (laughs) these kind of fields but Nonetheless, it was a flat area, and that was likely. Again, we don't know 100% sure, uh, but I believe it's very likely that that is where uh, Jesus was doing this teaching. One more there, I think we have. And again, that's looking from down on uh, the plain level, the Sea of Galilee right in here, uh, or Gennesaret, Lake of Gennesaret. And then uh, this is the pass, the Mount Arbel. We were looking down on it from the, that peak. 
uh, and through the Valley of the Wind and Doves that you've heard me talk about before. All right, thank you very much, operator. Um, so that gives us a little context. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus was preaching to two different, very disparate groups. It was not just generally casting out the same message. Oh, they were both hearing it. Both groups were hearing it. But there was a division that he made. His blessings that he gave were to the disciples. The curses that Jesus gave in our last time out were directed at the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were the primary subject of those that Jesus was saying to you, woe. He would later call them blind guides. But to God's disciples, to Jesus' 12 disciples, and to the larger group of his disciples, to those that were his followers and believed in him, they were promised blessings. Now, Jesus told them, and by extension us, that when we go against the grain of the world's kingdom, it's going to provoke opposition. It's not going to always be, good news is not going to always be well received. You remember, it's an upside down kingdom now. God is in the process through his son beginning to make it right side up. But there is opposition and the persecutors of Jesus' disciples here are not yet the pagans at large. They will come into that as later as, as history comes along, more so. But at this point in time, it's fellow Israelites. It's the religious establishments and leaders like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. You see, Jesus, Jesus here is telling his disciples that they need to recalibrate. They need to recalibrate and prepare for the persecution that is to come. Jesus told them that in the Sermon on the Mount. He told them that here again about persecution, he would allude to that many times. That because they hate him, they will hate you too, my followers. So, we need to keep that in mind. There was a blessing for one group. Curses for this other self-righteous group that had lost the purpose for which they were given their authority. And now he's coming back to talk about what do we do in persecution. This portion of the text 
is not just about, oh, let's see how which one of us can outdo the other in being more generous or whatever. No, no, it's not a competition. It's talking about things that are related to persecution and how to prepare for that when it comes. Now, the outline for the Sermon on the Plain goes like this. The declaration, the description, and the discernment. Those are our three points for this morning. Now, the declaration, that's in verses 27 through 31. So if you're following along in your Bible, 27 through 31. Now, Jesus, as I said, has explained the stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, of its present world order. However, the Sermon on the Plain is far from over. Jesus adds to his teaching an emphatic phrase, but I say to you, and that you is plural, not singular, not talking to a, it's, it is, again, primarily speaking to his disciples. But I say to you who hear, Notice he says, often Jesus would say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He's talking to his own, to his followers, to his sheep. And then he goes on to declare what the world considers utter nonsense, absolute absurdity. Let me give you some examples. <laughs> they were just in, what, in the text. Listen to this. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Respond in, to aggression with gentleness. Be generous to those who are selfish. And treat others the way you wish they would treat you. Those are the things in the text. Now, if you try to do a one-up on competition with that you're totally missing the understanding of what Jesus is saying here you see many people tend to see these statements those things that I just mentioned about loving your enemies and blessing those who curse and praying for those who mistreat notice all the 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 uh, things in there that are hostile. Respond to aggression with gentleness and generousness with selfishness again, uh, in, uh, to those who are selfish. And then treat others as you wish they would treat you. All of that, people today tend to see these statements as just principles to live by. In other words, I need to try to do better at working on the golden rule and all these other things that we just read and just talked about. The golden rule and other similar ways to really be spiritual. That's how a lot of people treat this text. I think that's missing the point. Again, remember, context is always what? Your friend. Too many people pull Bible verses out of thin air with no substantiation and try to affix them or apply them in ways not appropriate. 
Jesus is talking very specific here, and he's talking to his people about something that he knows good and well is coming. They hate him, they will hate you too. And he's trying to give them the way that they can thrive in light of this, in spite of this indeed. You see, Jesus is addressing these instructions to his disciples. Jesus is talking about his disciples' deportment under persecution, the pressure of persecution. That's what he's talking about. Not just about, hey, anybody, uh, you know, uh, how are you doing on your giving generously? Or how are you doing on, on uh, forgiving one another? Well, of course, there's, a, there's an aspect of that. But here he's talking specifically how to get prepared and ready for the reality that is going to come not only on Jesus, but upon his followers. This is not about giving stuff to panhandlers. Jesus has got in mind when someone's basically got a, a knife at your throat or a gun pointed at your head, you respond in these ways. It's not just talking about like we so often understand that is like, well, well I'm, I'm more I'm more kind than than that other person, so God's going to love me more. Totally, that kind of non gospel understanding is just we've got to stay with the context. So, as I said, this is not about giving stuff. I want you to listen to, uh, again, one of my favorite, I, I, I'm quoting pretty often because uh, for a long time I, I used to uh, uh, have a number of his books, but I got, finally got uh, some, some uh, new copies uh, of, uh, particularly uh, this uh, book in the uh, concert in uh, Luke, in the book of Luke, uh, Ralph Davis's The Year of Our Lord's Favor. Listen, listen to how he explains this. I think this is very helpful. The instances in verses 29 through 30 depict what happens when disciples suffer on account of the Son of Man. Remember in verse 22, last week it said, those who suffer because of me, on account of me, of who I am. And he said, get ready, it's coming your way too. In those situations, they are to function with an active non-resistance. In other words, in the midst of persecution, how should Christians respond? Here, the rank and file, we're not talking about a military situation, but we're the rank and file of God's people in the midst of persecution. In those situations, they are to function with an active non-resistance. The scope of the text has to do with persecution. It seems some expositors forget this when they arrive at verses 29 through 30. They are not general instructions for conduct of life's generic circumstances. Did you hear that? They are commands for disciples under duress from those who hate Jesus and them. That is the context that should control 
interpretation and application here. You can get way off. Maybe talking about good things, but not in context. Or rightly understand what Jesus is focusing on. You remember, don't you? After Jesus arose and ascended and left his disciples, the twelve, what did they start doing? <laughs> they, they were changed men. They went out and started preaching the gospel everywhere. And you know what? They started making, guess what? Enemies. And you may recall in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. Listen to this. And so they called them, they meaning the, the religious establishment, called the disciples, Peter uh, and John in particular here, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you, or excuse me, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge of that. Basically, we're not, we're not going to get involved in that. We got no dog in this fight. For, but, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We're, we're just telling you what we've seen and experienced. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Now, some other times, as we see, they didn't. But this, was, this again was how that they were using that principle of active non-resistance. They didn't get in their face. They didn't try to try to take them on mano y mano and say, our God's bigger than your God. That's not, that's not how they went about it. They just stated the facts with grace and graciousness and yet held their ground and trusted themselves to God. Now, the description is in verses 32, verses 32 to 36. Jesus is describing the exceptional ethic, not the conventional one. Jesus is saying this kind of situation needs not just an ordinary ethic, it needs an exceptional one. Loving those you, uh, who, excuse me, loving those who love you is no big deal, is it? You know, if you love, hey, I love you, well, I love you too. But as long as we're reciprocal and, and, and equal, well, that sometimes works out pretty well. But what about, see, there's nothing distinctive about that or different. But blessing those who curse you Praying for those who abuse you and mistreat you. Now that's surprising and quite uncommon. It, 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 to be abu truly abused and yet to not respond and retaliate 
You see, Jesus calls his disciples then and now to be different. And that astounds the world. When we don't kick back eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You see, Jesus calls his disciples to be different. And they are marked with a love that leaves unbelievers if they actually see true Christianity being born out. And particularly in a, this context of a time of persecution. That makes believers, I mean unbelievers, it messes with their head. It, can, it's, it's, it leaves them dumbfounded. In the 4th century, there was a Roman emperor, by the way, who was previously a Christian, had declared himself a follower of Jesus. But as the cards fell, he got a, lot, a big, much bigger house and a better car and a bunch of other things. He became the Roman emperor. Things just fell that way. And he decided, you know, that Jesus stuff was had a lot of hardship in it. A lot of things are very hard to, you know, I, now that I've got the world at my fingers, I think I'll, I think I'll kick, kick that to the curb. This Jesus stuff, get rid of it. His name was Julian the Apostate. Julian the Apostate. He was a 4th century Roman emperor. And yet, interestingly, listen to what Bruce Shelley, historian Bruce Shelley, uh, church history in plain language. Listen to what he says about O Julian the Apostate. Atheism, now understand, this is Julian talking. Atheism, i.e. Christian faith. In other words, our faith is atheistic as far as pagans are concerned. Because they had lots of gods. And the Christians wouldn't bow to, so they were considered pagans. I mean, atheists. Atheism, i.e. Christian faith, has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. You couldn't find Beggars where Christians were. And that godless, and that the godless Galileans, guess who those are? Christians. Talking about Christians, and he calls them godless. The godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, 
but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render to them. None of us are doing anything. Those Christians, those godless atheists, they're picking up all the pieces, putting them back together, saving the children instead of having them murdered and thrown to the, to the circumstances, the wind and the cold. You see, this kind of ethic is what Jesus' people Jesus said, you must be willing to come, become, if you want to be my disciple. And they did. This sort of thing is what Jesus meant. The love that marks his disciples must go beyond the boring, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours concepts of this age that's how most people do it you, know, you do you be nice to me and i'll be nice to you you know you treat me bad i'm going to treat you bad you know tit for tat jesus said no <laughs> you get that's where that but again it's in light of holding the faith in times of persecution the discernment is in verses 37 through 38. In the last two verses in the passage, a major focus is on discernment. Uh, basically, being self-critical instead of other-critical. You know, the part about judge not, lest you be judged. By the way, you and I know that that one is one of the most egregiously misunderstood and misused scriptures. A lot of people say, well, you shouldn't judge. Well, you know, I'm not called to be a judge. I am called to be a fruit inspector. And what I see on your tree is rotten. Um, but I'm not judging you. I'm not sending you to a place that you don't want to go to. That's not in my hands. I'm just telling you the truth. But nonetheless, the whole notion there of how this text unfolds, when he says, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Basically, the first principle of righteous judgment is to be generous in our judgments to others. When it comes to our judgment and the perception of others, what goes around comes around. That's how it works in the world. But if we avoid judging, speaking where it's not our place, so there's a God has a, has a place, and you better believe he will judge. 
but as his followers. We're to leave that to who? To him. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we're not that judge. If we avoid judging and condemning, others will not generally judge and condemn us. He's saying it in a, in a general way. If you are not overly judgmental, other people will tend to respond to that. There are, of course, exceptions. The very thing that Jesus is talking about in this text. He's telling his disciples it's going to get to be pretty rough sledding very soon. Sooner than you think. Sooner than you want. There are exceptions. Sometimes, even if you under normal circumstances, if you do not judge, others will be less judgmental towards you. That's just generally true. But in the case of when things have really gone off the, the rails, when things have gotten open, persecution, it can indeed end up being very, very different circumstance. In our time in America, today, we have known up until now very little. Historically, in our time, we have known very little persecution. But I don't know if about you, but I am fearful that that time is changing. We are already seeing stuff that is no country for folks here. We don't have categories for some of the stuff that we're already seeing. Now, do you better believe that the church historically for 2000, they've seen plenty of that. One of the things we pray for and the elders think is, is for the persecuted church. The church is still being ruthlessly persecuted in places in this world. And yet we've been in this an incredible, blessed bubble. But we're seeing cracks and we're seeing things happen. And all I'm, I'm not trying to scare you or me. I'm just trying to say, how long will persecution be kept away from our door? But even if it does come, and I pray that it doesn't, and I hope you will pray too. Now, we need to pray saying, Lord, you know we deserve it because we've done everything. We've flown in your, our fist in your face. But Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. But even if it does come more overt, Jesus assured his followers that the grace they give out will boomerang back to them in surprising ways. Listen to that again. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. The measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What are those surprising ways 
that being persecuted will still in the end not destroy us, but boomerang back in so many ways. You remember Mark 10, verse 30? Listen. This is Jesus talking again to his sheep, to his disciples. Who will not receive? He's talking about, look, some of you are going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to have a really hard road. Some of you are going to be desperate. You're going to be without. You're going to go without a lot. You're going to have a lot of hardship. And things are going to be rough. But then he says, who will not, those folks, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. You notice it's there. Not saying it doesn't get removed from the equation. You, you're going to, that's going to be right all embroiled and tangled up with it all. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus was saying, you can't lose. <laughs> you can't lose even in the worst scenario. Because not only are one day you're going to be with me and no one, my sheep, I give to them eternal life and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My father and I are one and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Not only that assurance, that blessed assurance that we cannot be killed. Oh, the body they may kill, Luther said. But that's the part of us that goes to be with him when we die. It's only an advancement into glory beyond anything. So we can't ultimately lose. But Jesus says, even in the midst of this, even before we're talking about what's going to be the eternal state and what God has restored up and has for us, he's saying, even now, you are going to have brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, along with the persecution. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the way that we will father and love one another. We will be fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters to one another. And we will defend one another and protect one another and help one another. And come to our aid. Even in this world. There is no way. There's no way we can lose. And my friends, that is world changing stuff. It changed the whole Roman world. Right side up. Took several centuries, but it was just gnawing away, putting the seed out, and in time, completely turned to where persecution were outlawed. You see, it's not hard 
to see how radical the teaching of Jesus was and is. Which explains the response of those who heard him then and should of those who hear him now. No one ever spoke like this man. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at times you, you do scare us. You did your disciples. They, they wondered whether what, what train had they got aboard. Sometimes we can feel that way too, Father. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will give to your children, even in the most difficult circumstances, such a treasure, such, such gift, such joy, such fullness, such togetherness and oneness because of you, Lord Jesus. Now, hear our prayer as we come to your table. Remind us of your great love that provides such a feast. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.